0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast, I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the proposal for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament, what it would do, how we got here, and where the debate is at right now. My guest today is Eddie Sinnott. Eddie is a Wamba Wamba First Nations lawyer and senior engagement officer with the Uluru Dialogue. Hello, Eddie. Hey, how are you? The voice to parliament is an idea that's been coming for a while, but has now hit the political prime time with legislation to hold a referendum on its way through Parliament now. It's rare that new political institutions are formed. We don't normally do episodes on legislation going through Parliament, but a big part of this podcast is talking about how political institutions work. And of course, this will be a subject of a national vote, so we'll be having more episodes around the time of the referendum. Eddie, why don't we start by going through the process that led to this proposal of A Voice to Parliament?
1: The most recent kind of process for a voice uh, goes back to the Uluru Statement from the Heart when it was issued to Australian people. Uh, behind it, there was a bit of a process previously about constitutional reform or constitutional recognition more broadly. And then if we go back even longer than that, there's always been this emphasis or target for reform around a representative body or representation, especially at the Commonwealth level, um, throughout our federal history. Uh, But also, you know, with the previous colonies and coming states and territories. So it's a bit of a mixed bag there with, you know, the history of the um, states and territories being left with, you know, the responsibility for Indigenous peoples and that being left out of the Constitution. And then um, this idea about recognition and representation being tied together and all of that culminating in Euler Resent from the Heart Needs Call for a voice to Parliament.
0: Sometimes constitutional recognition was presented as sort of a symbolic thing about a some kind of statement, some kind of expression and acknowledgement, and nothing, nothing like literally nothing more than that. Indeed, you could argue the preamble referendum in 1999, talk about low-key referendums that everyone's forgotten about, Um which was to insert a preamble, kind of a badly written poem at the at the start of the constitution. Part of that was about recognizing indigenous people and it did not go very well that referendum. But it seems like one of the things that came out of the Uluru process was a rejection of that approach of saying from First Nations people, we're not interested in symbolism. We're not interested in a statement on its own. You know, maybe a statement could be part of something bigger, but that's not the priority.
1: As a nation, right, we've, we've tried to get out of this recognition issue or this reconciliation issue very cheaply, and symbolism is one of those ways. So we don't have the historical recognition of indigenous peoples and our existence and the rights that flow from that like other nations do. So North America, South America, New Zealand, um, you know, even the Sami people in, in Europe, um, so with, uh, you know, treaties or similar types of agreements. So we lack that historical recognition and foundation for the relationship here. And ever since, we've been trying to retrofit something to to this relationship, right? So since the 60s and then the building through the kind of self-determination movement that kind of culminated in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, um, we've had movements towards that, but then also the political shift in, the attitude towards it. So the election of the Howard government really brought a different emphasis on Indigenous affairs and the approach to it, and a really big emphasis on this idea of symbolism. So, you know, we might recognise that Indigenous peoples were here, but we're now a multicultural nation and we move on, and there's no differentiation or recognition of the unique place of Indigenous peoples. And for most of us, most of the people in our community, I'm, I'm confident in saying that, it's just plainly ridiculous. And so symbolism alone just doesn't achieve anything it doesn't give the necessary weight or structural reform to you know recognition of the rights that we believe should flow with recognition um but it also doesn't do anything about changing the very dire circumstances that many of our people um you know live and deal with and so yeah symbolic recognition um has been you know resoundingly rejected by our community and i think by more and more australians as well that support the voice and support this reform in the sense that they don't just want to, you know, kick the can down the road or support something that's not, um, you know, meaningful to us as average and Torres Strait Islander people. It's just the whole idea of, um, you know, why would you recognise us through a measure that we don't want? When you know, um, kind of like treating us like petulant children or something and saying, no, this is good for you. This is what we're going to do. We're going to move on. Um, so very much a rejection of symbolism alone, and it's not that symbolism isn't important it is um, you know in everything that we do in the constitution and politics but um, it needs to have that substantive weight if it's going to be you know have any meaning and effect not only on our relationship going forward but also on those uh, very real practical issues that we
0: face. I'm going to touch on this a lot more in one of the podcasts we're going to do later this year but I just want to briefly mention of course this would not be the first elected body representing Indigenous people we've seen in Australia right there's both a a history of these bodies at a federal level, but there's also a history and a present story of these bodies existing at more local levels, right?
1: If we go back to uh, the Whitlam era, we had the National Aboriginal Conference and the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. Uh, so these were the first kind of national representative bodies that came after the 1967 referendum. And both the uh, Whitlam and Fraser government really took... Um, I, I, guess perhaps more so the Fraser government because, you know, Whitlam kind of instigated some of the changes and it. it was Fraser that actually delivered on them and put them in place, including, you know, Land Rights Act in the, um, in the Northern Territory after Whitlam had, you know, um, started that process and delivered on it as well.
0: Whitlam wasn't really around long enough to see the culmination.
1: No, unfortunately. Um, well, depending on where you stand on that. On that. Um, but from there, we've had various different versions you know, and it's actually uh, the call for treaty that comes from the National Aboriginal Conference as well. It, it wasn't necessarily a mainstay target of, of our community before that as well. So we get kind of swept up in the similar kind of movements that are happening in the 60s and 70s around the globe for the, the kind of civil rights movement and the emphasis on self-determination and representation for Indigenous peoples. And so that's kind of you know in lockstep what, with what was happening in the international community at the time as well. Um, with a lot of the decolonisation happening in different circumstances for you know former uh, colonial states, uh, but also the very early development of international um, you know indigenous rights protections at that level, and for us it basically culminated or the high watermark was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, um, which is in itself was a compromise in many ways from the Hawke era. Of not being able to achieve national uh, land rights legislation and uh, treaty and so we kind of um, had at sick at the same time and then developing into you know changes that happened following that with Marbo, and then the response from the government being about um, implementing a social justice package so in that era it's very much about self-determination recognition of indigenous rights to self-determination which means the ability to be able to have you know, input and say over the decisions that are made about you, about your representation, about, you know, maintaining your culture and your, you know, political status and entity. And um, that, as I said before, kind of all comes into trouble in the Howard era, which marked a distinct difference or, or approach. And coming out of that failure of treaty as well, um, we get put into this phase of reconciliation or, you know, the Council for Australian Reconciliation so the modern reconciliation action plans which you know many people would be familiar with are very much you know the child or the result of of that failure of more substantive reform and this more um, you know it's not simplistic well it is simplistic in many ways but um, less impactful approach to addressing indigenous claims and kind of reconciling um, so yeah the kind of high watermark of representation um elected so democratically elected bodies and I think that's something very important too so there are a lot of those that exist around the country with regards to uh, land councils especially so somewhere like the central land council which covers the southern half of the northern territory it's 90 democratically elected councillors that sit uh, on that um, so there are still remnants of those processes and procedures but uh, we've really been missing I guess that national high level um, one, which feeds into all of those or, you know, which is accountable to the local communities themselves. And that's where the reconciliation politics has tried to fill that void but hasn't necessarily done a very good job of doing that.
0: I mean, we we were talking before we recorded about how funny it is that it's been so long since we've had a referendum in this country that, you know, there's plenty of us who we're not that young anymore, but we were, we were still children when... Um, when that last referendum happened, there's a little bit of that that's also true with, you know, ATSIC as well. It's like this whole history of a democratically elected with with proper elections conducted by the AEC with an electorate of of Indigenous Australians voting, um, all of these things. I'm sure there was internal conflict and competition and all the things you see in every elected political body um, and it's been gone for almost 20 years. It was uh, The trigger was Labor leader Mark Latham going... I'd like to abolish this. And Howard went, Howard took him up on it and got it done.
1: So thank you for the opportunity.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The future One Nation State political leader, Mark Latham, a little preview from him. So yeah, it is interesting to go back and look at the history because we don't have a lot of current national level experience to go from when we talk about this. But um, let's talk a little bit about like what the theory of change is behind what The Voice is meant to do. Because I think there's a lot of unrealistic expectations put on it, both in terms of expectations that we can say precisely what it's going to do because we don't really know when we're not we're not legislating a plan or a particular policy we're creating a body that will then be filled with real people but also i think there's a lot of unrealistic expectation about being like well this will achieve certain great things whereas it's it's a lot more modest really but like what is it that you think it's actually meant to do
1: yeah absolutely i should say first that you know, the voice is already being blamed for failures of the current system when it it hasn't even been implemented, right? So um, all of the failures of the past four decades of Indigenous affairs are being lumped at the feet of the voice and saying it won't do anything when we we haven't even implemented it and, you know, attempted to do it. And it's something quite galling, but also confusing, I think, for us that are so involved in it that, um, you know, that it can be blamed in that way for the first so especially when we hear it from you know politicians of, of all persuasions or governments that have had direct control over decision making and they're kind of giving us a lecture about what's going to close like or what's going to work in indigenous affairs when you know they've overseen abject failure um the very simple thing in my mind though about what it is about is about recognition and representation um it was a very hard process, as I understand, for our community um, to come to that point through the dialogues. There's a lot of mistrust or distrust in government. Um, people tell us often, you know, how do you expect the parliament or government to do the right thing here? You know, um, and, you know, you won't find, I don't think, another community other than the Aboriginal community in this country that understands the mistrust and the failure of government more. Um, but it's also an expression of hope in systems of democratic governance, not naively, you know, obviously the dialogues fleshed out what all the problems are, how we're going to be able to address change, Um, but very fundamentally on the principles of representative government of democracy and of how these institutions and political institutions especially should be working for us and should be accountable and transparent to where their authority is supposed to be drawn from, which is the people. And for many, that's, you know, a very idealistic retelling of our political institutions. And of course, there's the real politic of how these things play out. But for us, and for my understanding of it, it is about those two key principles of recognition and representation. So finally, after 230 or so years, establishing recognition of the rightful place of Indigenous peoples, not something that's racist, not something that's divisive, not something that's creating special rights, but actually You know, doing the equal thing by the rule of law and recognizing and engaging with the rightful place of Indigenous peoples. So it's constitutional recognition through a voice to parliament. And the voice to parliament part, very simply being about representation. There are laws, policies, decisions that are made that uniquely impact us, unlike any other Australian. I don't think that should be a controversial fact anymore, but it still is for many of the different cultural, political, and social reasons and we know from what has worked and what continues to work in various different smaller areas that having indigenous people directly involved and empowered through the decision making processes and informing the decisions themselves does make a real difference. And so for me I see it as being, you know, that wonderful opportunity to do the recognition part but also to be able to achieve something substantial and practical. Of course we understand That's not a silver bullet, and it never is in this case. And ultimately, according to our system of governments and the Constitution, the responsibility here still does lie at the feet of Parliament. But, you know, for us, it's enhancing that process, enabling that process to work better for us.
0: And I think there's an element as well where you think about, like, when Green senators get elected to Parliament or something. Sometimes people get elected to Parliament, they don't actually have the votes to change things directly themselves, but... Having a voice, having resources, having a presence near the national media when debates are happening. You know, there is so much about politics that is about driving the narrative and who is being listened to and who is being considered when these things are happening right. That is not actually about the hard constitutional things of who has the vote and who gets to decide how things work. And just I think a lot of the time that's what a lot of this benefit would be. And, yeah, sometimes the governments are going to ignore it. Like that's definitely going to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But sometimes they won't.
1: We don't get this back on the agenda until the Gillard minority government, right? And it was Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor, Adam Bant, that, that kind of crew um, that said, you know, these are the conditions of minority government. I mean, a, a little bit more powerful, I guess, in that instance, in that it was minority government and they were negotiating a deal to be able to. Um, But after, you know, Howard kind of throwing up constitutional recognition again, symbolically in 2007, as many people have interpreted that, I I do as a bit of a cynical kind of, you know, salvo to the the community to see what will fly. Um, But it's exactly through what you just said then, being able to put something onto the national agenda to be able to get it there. That's where the expert panel comes from in 2012, which looked into constitutional recognition. And then we get this succession of processes following that. I guess the difference from those processes to, to the one we're talking about now is that it was an expert panel, it was lawyers, it was experts telling the community what kind of recognition you know would work for them or what should work. Whereas the Uluru statement is the community engaged in dialogue itself, talking about what you know what they want. But it's through that political aspect, and I think this is something it's very hard for people to understand too, because I think we have done such a poor job, or you know, with transparency and accountability as well. But also trying to ask people to invest in something that, you know, there is no guarantee on as well. It's what we put into it and enable the institution to be able to work that's going to deliver on the outcome. So even the voice itself is, you know, its effectiveness and meaningfulness will depend on the relevance of the the representations it's making and its ability to be able to articulate those. It's not just going to be a free pass.
0: You know, and if this is embedded in the constitution, it'll be around for a long time. Probably over time it will evolve in its shape there will be different people who will participate some of those people will probably be better at their jobs than other people there will be times when it's more effective and times when it's less effective all that is true of every other democratic institution we have you know and we don't we, we didn't abolish state governments when eddie obede got arrested you know which is an example i heard in a podcast talking about that what happened with that sick but you know like sometimes people who aren't great get into positions of power and that happens. I mean, one thing what you were just saying about the expert panel made me think of is I've seen a lot of criticism being about, oh, it'll create a new bureaucracy as if there isn't already a bureaucracy. You know, the bureaucracy exists. It's enormous. This is, you know, creating democratic institutions that can guide that, whether whether direct or guide, but like somewhere in there. Um, But also talking about, oh, it'll be elite, you know, it'll be dominated by elites, blah, blah, blah. But every... Every other representative body already is that. And this, if anything, creates the potential that it will be less dominated, right? Like, just like how there's lots of lawyers in parliament, it is obviously hard to make these bodies not be dominated by people who are more highly educated and lots of lawyers. Um, but, you know, this creates more potential than what we already had.
1: Yeah, it is It is really quite something to see politicians, again, of all persuasions, stand there and say, you know, this will be dominated by elites when, you know, they're talking about themselves. or they're they're railing against their own kind of system and dealing with bureaucracy. Um, We know already through what the intention of the Uluru Dialogues were, was that that's not what the community wants and it won't fly with them. Um, We know through the design principles that were fought hardly with the government to put in place that that's not what they're committed to in developing. So they've committed to developing a process with the community that is accountable to the community itself. Um, so in many ways, I think the voice will actually end up being much more accountable um, to its, you know, its constituency, its, its um, you know, its base than what perhaps, you know, three-year uh, federal elections delivers us with the um, different, you know, party systems that we have. It's just a, um, I mean, one on the one hand, it shows how much work a lot of us still have to do in educating the public, and there is still six months to run on a referendum campaign um on the other hand it also shows how much of that elite kind of cultural space that is in the political bubble and i, I know i'm a lawyer i'm you know, very much part of that space as well um just haven't read and don't know about what the proposal actually is and, and what we're asking for here um, you know so it's very easy for someone to stand up or the opposition leader or whoever and say oh it's going to be 24 hand picked people when you know that's been ruled out this's been clearly you know addressed and it's just not what the community wants. And then also confusing what's happening with the constitution and the legislation and in the sense that it can change and it will change when it has to. And if it's not working, it would be bad for government and for the voice. You know, its its relationship and its effectiveness is going to depend on its ability to be meaningfully representative of the community.
0: Well, I was talking to someone the other day and they were talking about, oh, well, we have all these rules in our constitution around how parliament's elected and i'm like well not really there's not, not that much in the constitution fair. on parliament and some of the bits we have are bad you know section 44 that deals with uh, eligibility of members of parliament is a complete mess and it causes all sorts of problems it kind of makes our parliamentary elections kind of subject to greek immigration law and rubbish like that you know um so like we don't want to embed things that we might do for a couple of years and go oh we want to tweak those a little bit so we we know that's a thing i do want to ask about um what you think about what the model could look like because i my understanding is there's a deliberate decision both to not lock in a model in the constitution but not also just say this is our plan this is what we're going to legislate if it's because that's kind of two separate things you could you could still not embedded in the constitution and say, this is our plan. But what is the plan? How much do we know about what it might look like?
1: So I think it's worth taking a, another step back as well and talking or introducing the LinkedIn and Karma report here as well because it's it kind of looms large over this whole conversation. Um, and that is because uh, Langton and Karma was the co-design into, into what a voice could look like under the Morrison government. Its terms of reference deliberately excluded cons- discussion of constitutional enshrinement and the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and it was set up so that it would inquire into a national body and local and regional bodies that fit with existing structures already. And so, already, it was you know um, the complete opposite of what the dialogues were talking about because they said it's those systems and structures that are failing us. So, tweaking that isn't isn't going to help. And it's also not constitutionally enshrined, so everything it was that was done under that report, even though it did do some good work, but I, you know, I'd say that a lot of it is not good as well, and was re- you know resoundingly kind of rejected by the community. Um, is developed for a non-constitutional legislative setting that fits with the existing structures, and that's not what the Voice is about. It's not what the Uluru Statement is about, and so that's where we get to this whole argument now, right? Where We get a new government, they come in, they say we're going to do this. It's very easy for others to start saying, well, what's the detail? How's it going to work? And the Langton and Carmel report was kind of sitting there. So the prime minister picks it up and takes it into parliament and says, here's all the detail. This is all you need. Other people start doing it, but, you know, kind of confusing it all again, because that was never the model that was agreed to. It was never actually designed to fit with the constitution or in that kind of system. And so then we've had to have this whole argument, including with the government itself, about what the process is. So over the last six months, through the referendum working group, the engagement group and the constitutional experts group, plus the engagement so the Indigenous Law Center, which I'm part of, um, did a national process of consultation with all of the law societies and you know, nations' leading constitutional scholars and practitioners as well about the amendment. And then looking at all of those previous reports, so including Lake Tid and Karma, including the Uluru Dialogues, um, including going all the way back to the expert panel and drawing out of them a set of design principles which will guide the government in the development of the voice after a successful referendum. And so it's always been this balance between you establish the principle and power in the constitution, but how much detail of how it actually works do you embed there versus how much flexibility do you require into the future so it remains meaningful versus also the political reality of what's achievable at a referendum. So there's always been those kind of three pillars of what is it that we're actually going to be able to achieve and do here. And so we know now this government at least is committed to the design principles. Uh, I think the most important one out of that is that it will be directly engaged with the community according to local community needs, what their voice structure will look like and how that feeds up to a national level. It doesn't say anything about the numbers or anything like that. But the most important thing, I think, for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, which has been lost a lot in the commentary, is that they need to be involved in designing that voice. And, of course, the people whose voice is to be represented should be designed in doing that. The thing that I keep saying to people that bring up saying, well, you know, it could be anything. They could give it power to do this. like I mean, that's all nonsense. The, the amendment is very explicit. It's a, you know, to make representations, power has parliament over it. But even then, if we implement something in legislation that doesn't work, parliament can change it. If Peter Dutton's elected and is the prime minister and runs a government and he doesn't like what Labour's implemented for the voice panel, he can change it.
0: And like all of that is subject to the normal democratic procedures, right? Yeah. Like people sometimes talk about that like that's happening in the shadows. But... Parties can make promises at elections and then put legislation through parliament just as usual. Do the design principles make clear that it would be connected to local bodies or is that bit not clear?
1: No. So they don't in the sense of what I guess the opposition leader calling for and having these very deliberate bodies. But, you know, Minister Bernie's come out since it said, Of course it would. And I mean, this, again, is just going back to the confusion of what people mean by local and regional bodies as well. So Professor Anne Toomey uh, did a very good interview on ABC recently, kind of, you know, throwing a hand grenade into the opposition's claims about local and regional voices uh, without having anything to feed to the top level, because if it's set up with a Commonwealth, it wouldn't have any power over, you know, state, local government kind of stuff as well. And then we see what's happening in South Australia, in Victoria, and Queensland, where they're establishing um, state-based representative bodies and treaty processes as well.
0: And indeed, myself and some of the commenters on the blog actually had a little contribution to the South Australian process where they had proposed using first-past-the-post and we got it changed. And they are now using a single transferable vote for their election. So. I
1: mean, they're the important things that are happening already, right? And I, for me, it just seems... And again, I guess this could be my bias and the fact that I'm so intimately involved in it. I understand the different parameters. It just seems so, you know, incongruous that it wouldn't feed into or have a relationship with those. That's the whole point of getting it to work, right? But then the other point, too, is that the existing structures, the existing processes, especially bureaucracy and the executive, because they're the ones that mob deal with, most of the time parliament's important for the transparency and accountability and authority for all of that um but they're the things that mobs say fail them so when we turn around and say oh well we're just going to tinker with the existing structures slap a new name on it and then you get to make representations it's just like it's (laughs) i mean for us you know involved in it again and for people in the community i mean that's what we've been dealing with for 40 50 years and we're just like well why that's that's not a change that's not you know this is something that um Governments, again, of all persuasions, have become very good at at getting out of this very cheaply. So rebranding a policy, implementing some more funding into a particular area, but really just maintaining the status quo approach to these things. And, I mean, as you said, like, there's a daff of kind of knowledge on um, that national kind of level about representative structures and ATSIC, but a lot of people that were involved in it and, you know, a lot of people since So I, I was a child when ATSIC was around, my memories of ATSIC, other programs that were run in communities that we got to participate in that don't exist anymore. Um, But there's been a real vacuum of, you know, empowerment of leadership of being able to bring something to that national level from all of those bodies. And it is through a direct accountability system, through elections, as we said, you know, ATSIC had 35 different regions where councillors were elected and then built up. That's where the accountability for those local and regional voices comes from.
0: We don't know yet whether this voice would be directly elected or would be um, members appointed from some uh, subordinate level
1: yeah so the one principle that talks about this says that the community will select themselves depending on their local needs uh for me if you look at all of the other bodies that are out there now especially the land councils they're all democratically elected Um, i just don't see any other way it could happen for it to be meaningful and effective, and for it not to be democratically elected, the only proviso on that I see is it might be a temporary provision where a regional area, depending on their cultural and resource-based needs or whatever capacity level they're at, decides to appoint, in agreement with government, um, you know, whatever structure is existing there, to be able to to represent for that time. And some places in the country, so especially in Arnhem there, where Mr Yanapingu, who's been a massive leader in the Goumatch clan and everything else there, they have very established representative structures and processes there already. So that might be something for that community where they want to feed from that directly in. Um, And I think that's important that the government has said, we will work with the community to work out what is important to them and what's going to work for them. But realistically, I just... Even if that was the case, for me, that would only ever be a temporary solution because I just don't see any other way how it can be meaningful, effective and accountable to the community without being democratically elected. That's what the Langton and karma report spoke about as well, with the provisor to that there would be a gender balance and a youth um, age balance as well.
0: Okay, cool. Um, Now, I want to just run through quickly a couple of the criticisms we've been getting because we're recording this podcast in April and there will be other podcasts to deal with the final weeks of the campaign, but right now there's three things I want to bring up. One is this talk around representation. There's been this, I would argue, fantasy built up that a clause in the Constitution says that this body has the power to make representations effectively um, imposes a burden on government to consult with them in a particular way which would kind of clog up the systems of government, lead to high court challenges or whatever. What do do you say about that?
1: Uh, Well, in a word, it's nonsense. (laughs) And um, you don't just have to take my word for it. Um, This is something I've been telling a lot of people. You can take the word of the nation's, you know, absolute cream of the top, best constitutional scholars and practitioners uh, that say as much as well. So we're talking uh, Brett Walker, SC, uh, Kenneth Hayne, Antoomy, Cheryl Saunders, like all of these people that have been involved in this process and have spoken about this. Um, it's confusing what happens at a normal legislative level with judicial review, and what this constitutional amendment is. And so, judicial review, when you know a decision maker makes a decision and they should have taken something into account or they didn't, um, most of that's established by legislation. So there are some. There was a Santos one up north recently where they didn't consult with the community properly. They overturned that decision, and it just means you know it goes back to the decision maker. They have to take into account none of that is established in the constitutional amendment it's very explicit that it's just making representations but people and i would say they're from the same kind of camps that would make these arguments if we were talking about any other kind of provision who kind of are scared of the potential of activist judges or of implied rights in our constitution uh, which for me is just another kind of thing as a constitutional scholar if anyone knows about the history of our constitution and it's expansive power towards the Commonwealth and a complete limit on any kind of implied rights. It's just insane. Um, but it just doesn't do it. It's not there. Um, and even, this I guess this has been one of the frustrating things as an expert in this field as well, is to see people endlessly bring up these hypotheticals when it's been explained you know, by people that have sat on the bench of the High Court um, by people. I mean, this is the other thing too about dealing with principle and institutions, right, where you can't be, absolutely definitive because it's it's a law it's an imperfect kind of thing but you know the overwhelming weight of expert opinion um the thing about representations too they get scared about the word representations for some reason and they think the scope is too broad and it's going to bring government down as we know. um you know again it's about the flexibility of the voice to be effective into the future advisory has a very specific constitutional meaning as well in, in the constitution so representations is a uh, was determined through the drafting process to be a better fit, to be able to provide you know, the broadness of the different nature and character of what it could be. And then also Parliament still has the power over the procedures and everything else that happens there. And just because the voice has the ability to make representations, it doesn't guarantee the quality of those representations. It doesn't guarantee that someone will listen. It doesn't guarantee advance notice. It doesn't do any of that. And that's why people are reading into it, saying there's an implied you know, or duty to consult, it just doesn't exist.
0: Anyone can make representations, uh, but it would be different because this is a body that would have a certain legitimacy from its process of being elected and its status in the constitution, maybe some resourcing that helps it do these things, and so it wouldn't be the same as anything else, but it would ultimately be just another voice to get. I mean the Productivity Commission, there's all sorts of different bodies that exist that provide like input in these ways. I mean, someone also pointed out the Reserve Bank talks to everyone.
1: I mean the Reserve Bank is independent through the legislation that sets it up, but Parliament establishes the legislation for all of those other bodies as well. And so if it's not working and yeah.
0: And I mean a little bit of me thinks actually there's some of these people who don't like the idea of a body with a legitimacy speaking on behalf of Indigenous people that's going to express opinions on policy that they might not agree with, right? And they can't say that right now. So instead, they make up a bit of an argument about, well, we're worried it'll clog up the Constitution. But, I mean, I think the next point I was going to make was about the Canberra voice criticism from Dutton. But again, it feels like, well, if Peter Dutton wants to be the Prime Minister, he doesn't want a voice looking over his shoulder in Canberra. He'd like them off in the other parts of the country
1: absolutely for me it's about power and um at at its most base level so i mean people keep bringing up love and toms and Marbo and these other kind of things about say high court cases about judges doing this and that but you know love and toms especially which was a case about whether or not aboriginal people could meet the constitutional meaning of the definition of alien um the judges in there talk about parliament is not an absolute sovereign in the right of the king. They are subject to the constitution. They do not have, you know, and so much of the debate for me laying underneath it is this ability for parliament to do whatever they want. And so um, they think that, you know, this is going to hold parliament up. It's not going to hold it up in any way more than, it'll, you know, parliament's already or the government's already in court and still operates and runs. And I think a lot of it is like that. And then I also think there's a more nefarious part of that crowd That are also dead set against the idea that indigenous peoples have have rights and so these are the kind of people that are making arguments that you know mabo should never have been decided native title shouldn't exist it was bad law. it's bad law today um that that i don't think that's a you know a representative group i think that's a minority within that group but for me it absolutely is about power about transparency and accountability because the canberra voice thing is just such a fundamentally Basic misrepresentation of what this reform is about, what the design principles say, what the dialogue says, but also of the fact that even if we had local and regional voices, you still need something for it to feed back up to Canberra to the to the national level.
0: Canberra, both the place, but also the the institutions that we refer to when we talk about Canberra. And I've got friends who live in the ACT who don't like that when we when we use Canberra as a nickname for the federal government. They're like they're only here a few weeks of the year. Um, but that is referring to a body that has an enormous amount of power and, pr- frankly, all of the money, the way our constitution is now set up, feed, goes through Canberra. Most of the money the state spend comes from Canberra. Uh, the idea that like the whole thing about if you have this representation, it needs to be in both, both constitutionally but physically in the place where the power is being exercised, right? Like local bodies, great. I love love local councils, love all that kind of localism or whatever. Maybe local voices can speak to political institutions that exist at a local and a state level. But the national level is where we've concentrated so much of the power. And if you don't have one there, the whole thing is a little bit pointless, right? Certainly not a federal issue at that point.
1: I mean Ken Wyatt spoke very powerfully on this on the seven thirty report and it was about the reality of executive government, why why that should stay as part of the reform, but also the reality of Canberra and where all the power and decision making and money is concentrated. And it's about having a seat at the table. You know, you can have all the local and regional voices as you like, but if we're still not getting a seat at the table where those decisions are being made or where the authority comes from to reverse the many decisions and change the culture of parent decision making in those regions by departmental heads and by the bureaucracy and everything then it really is all for nothing. It's just more of the same of what we have now.
0: Okay, so one more criticism I wanted to bring up with you and see what you think, where people talk about this as being race-based or even talk about it as being a racist institution because it's people of a particular ethnic background that are participating who are being represented in a body that the rest of Australia won't have a say, well, Parliament will obviously have a say in how it's formed, but they won't get to vote in it. What's your response to that?
1: I guess the short response is it's not racist. Um, The positive recognition of Indigenous rights and peoples is not a racist act. That's why the Australian Human Rights Commission supports The Voice. Uh, It's why The Voice doesn't breach any domestic or international protections against race discrimination. And it's why also alongside those domestic and international, you know, protections against race discrimination, there's also protections of recognition of indigenous rights to self-government, um, to land, to culture, to all those other kind of things.
0: I'm really fascinated by the concept that indigenous people in this country are an entity or a number of entities that pre-existed and still exists and their kind of their power has been in abeyance, but they are they are an entity that is is entitled to representation which makes it different to any other ethnic group that might live in this country of you know Greek Australians or anything you know
1: and that's the argument that comes up often or well if if you know they get you it, know, why don't immigrants you know Chinese Africans and this comes up all the time um and the answer to that you know there's a there's a bigger one about <laughs> sociological stuff that race is a, is a myth as a category it's a socio-political thing that was used to you know characterize people as inferior and everything else but in our history indigenous peoples exist as political and cultural entities they did so before the australian state existed and they continue to do so now despite everything that's happened one of our difficulties as i discussed earlier is that we don't have a foundational relationship or agreement that recognizes our right as such such as a treaty or any other agreement like in north america so in those kind of places, not that it hasn't been any easier for them, but they can at least point to an historical treaty or to a section of their constitution and say, we have a right as indigenous peoples, you have to negotiate with us, this is our you know, political, cultural territory, etc." So we don't have that. And then over our 230 years, the predominant way that the state and the other institutions have developed to deal with us is through the category of race. So it was originally to characterise us as inferior, and, you know, the myth of Nullius was read retrospectively back over that to say it was a no man's land belonging to no one. So, you know, empty, we could come, bring the English common law, we could propagate it, we could do all those things. Um, and that we didn't have rights as Indigenous peoples. So we were to be assimilated in and to die out. So when my nan was born in 1930, she's 93 this year, um, the predominant policy at the time was based on the belief that we would die out. So they would talk about it in this benevolent kind of language to kind of you know assuage or step away from the responsibility for that. Um, and it was very much based on the racial hierarchical ideas of the time of social Darwinism and everything else. And so we have a very bad history in this country of, of recognising Indigenous people's rights, of interacting and dealing with them. And we've had to try and retrofit to a system that was developed on race as the category to understand us. So 67 comes along because the states were doing a very poor job, basically, and we wanted the Commonwealth involved, and it amends the race power and removes the other than Aboriginal people. The unfortunate thing for us is, because race was the only thing that was in the Constitution to be able to deal with this, it means a lot of positive legislation today you know, is technically supported by the authority of the race power, as well as some negative decisions that have been made towards us as well. Marlborough comes along and Justice Brennan, you know, some quite famous lines in there about being frozen in an era of racial discrimination and that it was clearly wrong and that indigenous peoples did exist. Um, but the persistence of this myth today is is still very clear, right? So we are all Australian, we're all equal citizens, don't be stupid, indigenous people don't have special rights. We're not arguing about special rights or creating the rights, we're talking about indigenous peoples that already exist and that have these legitimate claims, and being able to have a very clear mechanism to be able to engage with and deal with those. So for a lot of our community, that comes through in the slogan, sovereignty never ceded. But it also means we're dealing with the political and legal reality of this system that's been developed over the top of us, right? And according to that system, we don't have any sovereignty. So how do we get to a meaningful expression of our existence of indigenous peoples, Whilst also engaging with the reality of, of that system. and for me that is the Uluru statement from the heart. And so I'm constantly and um, I mean it's a hard conversation to have with people because the basic principles of equality of citizenship and whatnot seem you know so simple to, to many that there shouldn't be any differentiation. Um, as a legal scholar or someone engaged in this space, you know I know and understand that you know the reality of equality and the, of the rule of law should mean, you know, doing equal by indigenous rights as much as we do by other people's rights and that legitimate differences, you know, you don't erase those in the name of some, you know, um supposed idea of equality to, to get rid of the problematic issues around it. Um, but that's where, you know, the very long way of saying this is where this race argument comes from. And it is just so I mean Ken Wyatt again was very good on this and um talking about it's just not an argument that should be, you know, made in this day and age. Doesn't fit, you know, the relationship that we have. It's not about race division, um, but unfortunately, there are some that, again, I think are quite benevolent and ignorant in their understanding of that history. And then I think there is also a, a section of that that are quite um, deliberate in their denial of indigenous existence and rights, and they would prefer to continue the myth of terra nullius, or they would argue and say, "Well, indigenous peoples weren't." states that weren't nations you didn't have rights all that kind of stuff we know now what the generally accepted thing is is that you know civilizations develop differently depending on where they are and just because they're different doesn't mean you know they're inferior and whatnot but that is the history that we're dealing with behind this whole idea about this is race division um yeah so it's incredibly frustrating it's as far as i'm concerned it's not correct um but it's part of this basically the i i would say the historical hang-up Uh, that the Australians have with, um, you know, I even, so I I teach uh, first year constitutional law and some later years as well, and talking to them about the Immigration Restriction Act and the fact that, you know, a lot of the policies or even the race power in, in the first place was put in place to be able to deal with immigration and immigration power about keeping Australia white, that race was a foundational principle of our political and legal institutions. Um, you know, that shouldn't be a controversial fact. It should be something we should be able to deal with and be able to try and, you know, move on through our political institutions. But unfortunately, it causes a lot of issues today still.
0: It's interesting as well when I, I've done a lot of reading about, like, politics of the very early 20th century and post-Federation and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of have to acknowledge up front because it's so easy to miss it. It's kind of like a fish swimming in water that the whole political debate at that time Assumed indigenous people weren't legitimate participants in the in the political process and assumed that people who are not white who are not indigenous should be excluded from the country and shouldn't be allowed in. And they they debated over detail, but it was just it was so all-encompassing that it's like not being able to see out of the fog that you live in, you know. And you kind of, when you do the history, it's very easy just to ignore that and talk about the debates and the divisions that exist in that time, but you kind of need to acknowledge at the start. There was this immensely racist difference that these debates might look a bit like what we have now, but there was this other element that kind of envelops the whole thing. We need to wrap up, but um, it's funny that we haven't really talked very much about Treaty because it was in the notes that I made, and I feel like if we recorded this podcast two months ago, we would have been talking about Lydia Thorpe and Treaty and all that, but I would acknowledge that one of the theories here is that um, a voice could potentially be that partner that represents that pre-existing political entity in negotiating with the Commonwealth or, or setting up procedures for nations in particular parts of Australia to negotiate with Commonwealth and state governments or, or whatever. But, like, that—that that is one of the benefits of it. Um, but also, I mean, one thing maybe I'll get to in another podcast as well is it is interesting to think about how this body is meant to do something different than... The, say, the representation of Indigenous people as members of federal parliament. We have a record large number of um, Indigenous federal MPs now. Indeed, in the Senate, you could argue Indigenous Australians are actually significantly overrepresented now in terms of their proportion.
1: Tasmanians too.
0: <laughs> Tasmanians too, yeah. <laughs> if we're going to talk about unequal representation in the constitution. Um, but... Uh, Diversity in Parliament is important and good and achieves things, but it is also worth reminding ourselves that ultimately, like, the people elected to Parliament represent the constituencies they're elected to represent, right? And so none of the people, you could argue a little bit about the members who represent the Northern Territory where Indigenous Australians are a large part of their electorate, but certainly for the rest, they primarily represent their party and they represent their electorate. They don't represent Indigenous Australia and that's what The Voice is designed to do instead
1: they very easily could not be there in the next election as well. You know, we could go from over-representation to no representation in the space of one election. Um, you yeah, know, notwithstanding a couple of other things there too. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, you know, there's been a lot of arguments in that space too about reserved seats and, you know, similar to what New Zealand has and everything else. And it's it's part of, I think anyway, And I don't mean to be too hard on other people, but it's part of like a bit of a sloppy comparative thing that's done without fully appreciating the differences, the historical differences in what I just said then as well. But that sets up the political ground for being able to even implement those kind of things, let alone, you know, the constitutional difficulties around establishing that and whether or not it's so straightforward.
0: I mean, numerical differences too. I remember doing the sums at one point about how many reserve seats you would have if they were proportional to the population. If you assumed not every Aboriginal Australian would choose to be on the Aboriginal role, for example, if you had such a thing, because not every Maori in New Zealand uh, chooses to be on the Maori role, and it ended up being less seats than the number of Indigenous people. I mean, it would change their dynamic for those MPs because they would actually represent Indigenous people, but it I feel like people are over-egging uh, how much of it would be the case.
1: People, I think, misrepresent what has been the experience of those seats in New Zealand as well. Um, you know, they end up very much like minority party kind of status or, you know, being used for the, you know.
0: Anyway... Another podcast. Maybe we'll have you on another time to talk about. I could go into racial gerrymandering in the US and all sorts of things, but yeah,
1: I'll say very quickly just one more thing on on treaty. It comes up against those very same issues we're talking about: that historical lack of recognition and the lack of foundation. In in the other countries where they exist, they were all developed before their constitutional systems were right, so they were embedded. Even the US gives you know complete power to Congress to override. The, the treaties and whatnot. It's embedded in their constitution, the, the treaty, right. Um Treaty of Waitangi with the way the New Zealand constitutional system works again is different, but it's the the political changes really in the seventies and eighties that give it its power and weight as well. And in um all of the other kind of places, Canada um like um the different treaty processes that have developed around there and the treaty rights being embedded in the constitution we have none of that so if we go to treaties now they're a commonwealth piece of legislation that is susceptible to commonwealth action and so our basic point is without a voice delivering permanent structural reform and empowerment to indigenous peoples We could go down the treaty pathway, we could get 10 years into it, and a hostile government could come along and rip it up, and then we've got nothing, and we're back to ground zero. Um, And so that's one of the predominant reasons, other reasons too, but one of the predominant reasons why it's sequenced the way it is in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, voice establishing the structural change, giving us that permanent recognition and representation so that we can be empowered to actually have meaningful treaty conversations into the future.
0: I'm going to very quickly summarise the polls, but we're not going to talk about them at all, just we we think we're probably about 6 months away from the referendum right now uh every poll has been having yes be in majority support but not usually by a particularly large margins so um we've got a few polls from March that have uh yes polling 57 59% something like that we also got a news poll recently where they average they combined month's worth of polling data to get state polling averages for the six states um and what they found was in five of the states yes was in a majority in the sixth state in Queensland there were still more people saying yes than no but i think it was about 49 to 43 with the remaining uh 8% um undecided so what the polls do show is yes is currently in the majority both nationally and in enough states to pass a referendum but the majorities are not huge and the trend Looks like it's a little bit in favor of no, but not particularly dramatic right now. So that's something to keep in mind. I would say right now the we could go into all the stuff about how referendums go. We're not going to do that today. That'll be for another episode. But um, we did talk a little bit about some of that stuff in the Aston by-election results podcast, if you're interested. We talked a little bit about the dynamics of how referendums are, are kind of opportunities to kick a, a government midterm, things like that. But we won't go into that today. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Eddie, for joining me. Thank you. We'll be returning to this topic later this year with a series of episodes around the time of the referendum. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon and Tallyroommastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au, and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Barreau for writing the music you are hearing in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.